we're getting a lot of mail here at the podcast every day. People email, they reach out on Instagram, they drop a note on Facebook, and uh, we really appreciate it. Every letter will get answered. I can promise you that. I will get to every one. And some of them, like the one I'm about to read, uh, will get answered on the air. Uh, Molly from Olympia, Washington writes, Dear Alex, I'd never heard the Jazz Butcher until you had the late Pat Fish on your podcast. That was an amazing conversation. And as soon as it was over, I went out and I bought every Jazz Butcher album I could find. I'm in love with the music and I have you to thank. So thank you. I make jam for a living and in honor of the recently departed Pat Fish, I made you Jazz Butcher Basil Blackberry Jam. I've enclosed a jar, and I hope you like it. Well, Molly, it's never too late to get into the Jazz Butcher, so welcome aboard. And I want my listeners to know that Molly did send me a beautiful jar of Jazz Butcher Basil Blackberry Jam. And um, the label has this really cool picture of Pat on it. She made it herself, and it looks awesome. Super pro. As for how it tastes, look, I had my doubts because... Let's face it, basil and blackberry are not two things I you know, normally put together. But I tried it, and to quote the Jazz Butcher himself in a song where he eats the Prime Minister, it was surprisingly tasty. And uh, it's probably some of the best jam I've ever had in my life. And Molly, you didn't tell me the name of your jam company, so I can't even plug it. All I can say is Molly from Olympia, Washington makes jam. That's all I know. She didn't tell me anything else. So you got to find her in Olympia and have her give you a jar of her Jazz Butcher Basil Blackberry Jam. And I'm sure she makes other great jams as well. Molly, the mysterious jam maker, thank you very much. I'm Alex Green, and this is the Basil Blackberry Jam episode of Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. Wasted years Won't waste another instant I fed my fears Things that haven't been yet Hope don't mean you sit there Just waiting for the changes It's fighting for the long shot Getting in the trenches Starting of Toad the Wet Sprocket, a band which features my guest today on the program, Glenn Phillips. Let me tell you a little bit about Toad the Wet Sprocket and Glenn Phillips. Hailing from just outside of Santa Barbara, Toad the Wet Sprocket got their start in the late 80s when high school pals Glenn Phillips, Dean Dinning, Randy Gus, and Todd Nichols decided it was time to form a band. Cut to 1989, and the band's demo, Bread and Circus, which came out on their own Abe's Records, was re-released by Columbia Records. From there, Toad the Wet Sprocket pretty much owned the 90s, putting out albums like Pale, Fear, Dulcinea, and Coil. They had massive hits with All I Want, Walk on the Ocean, Something's Always Wrong, and the number one modern rock chart topper, Fall Down. But as the story goes, owning the 90s was exhausting, and citing creative differences, the band took a break from being a band for a long time. I mean, they played sporadic shows here and there, but for the most part, Toad the Wet Sprocket were kind of on ice. All of the members of the band went on to do different projects, and Glenn Phillips had a busy solo career, and that was pretty much that. So yeah, Toad the Wet Sprocket were on ice for a long time, but... In 2009, the ice melted, and the band reactivated themselves from their hiatus. They put out their first new album since 1997. New Constellation is what it was called, 
and it was a blast of West Coast pop that reestablished Toad as a force to be reckoned with. Eight years later, here we are with Starting Now, the band's seventh full-length effort. A stirring platter that's melodic, melancholic, joyful, and undeniably catchy, Starting Now is as rousing as it is hopeful. Now, the band is down an original member. Drummer Randy Gus left in 2020, but Josh Dalbin is behind the kit, and he's crushing it. Totally fun to chat with Glenn Phillips. He's the kind of guy you could talk to for hours. He's bright, he's funny, he's kind, and he's deeply honest and very sincere. Here's me and Glenn Phillips having a chat right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. been a lot to catch up with when we when we first booked all these shows i think we were thinking we were seeing the ass end of it right and uh then deltas appeared and uh kind of changed all the equations so we've been having to you know move move in tandem with that and you know the rate of increase is going down so uh but the the it's still increasing but the rate of increase is slow and so um and most people have been understanding about uh you know we we had to add, add requirements for vaccination or testing for the audience ask the audience to wear a mask you know and only you know two-thirds of the audience seems to actually pay attention to that and right. uh some people seem very offended that we are asking uh you know uh, you know once again it's politicized and we're just trying to get through the tour because you know we can't be insured and it's kind of like it's that trying to appeal to, to people's compassion and kind of like well you're we're trying to work we're trying to do shows and you're not wearing a you know if you're an asymptomatic carrier it's like you could be the difference in whether we get to play the next 10 shows, which is tens of thousands of dollars in income and a whole lot of people having their night ruined and it's a small price to pay. I kind of, uh, I relate it to, to stop, line, stop signs and stoplights, you know? People don't think twice about their freedom being impinged on by driving on the right side of the road and stopping at a light. Right. It's 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 great way of not crashing into anybody else and having other people not crash into you. And it's like a, a small freedom that you give up in order to pay for much larger freedoms. And uh, for some reason, that same logic, the, the being told what to do is really hard for people to get and kind of, uh, especially where people are willing to even see, I think for, you know, for military action, they're willing to say freedom isn't free, but for their own kind of day-to-day -day relationship with the things that we actually sacrifice in order to, to work together as a society and protect each other. It's, it's interesting that that's become such a hot button issue, so. Yeah, and you've brought something up really interesting, which is you can have a mask mandate, but who's enforcing it if some, someone in the front row just takes their mask off? Like, what, ha what do you do? It's really left to trust. And, and uh, so, you know, it, we're doing the best we can, but even just playing a few shows, it's like, oh, we're going to be so lucky if we get through this in the black. <laughs> and we haven't worked for, two, you know, almost two years. It was 551 days between shows for us. Uh, and so, but we love playing music. I mean, that's the nice thing about being a musician is like, uh, you know, I, I keep quoting Gillian Welsh, like, you're going to do it anyway. Like there's nothing you can do to stop someone who loves this from doing this. So um, we're doing our best and, and just getting to see how much it means to people, you know? Uh, and these are also the risks we take going to a show or doing this just because it feels so good to, to, to listen to music together, to create something in front of people. Like there's nothing that can replace that. So I get it. 
Yeah. And the 551 days was how long I was out of the classroom too. And I got to mm-hmm. say like, like getting back felt, felt really good. Um, yeah. but the time what do you teach? I teach English. So, okay. you know, linguist literature and, and, um, oh, that's great. Yeah. It's, it's a blast. And, but for you in those 551 days, was there anxiety? Like I want to get back out there. Did it, did it make you hungrier than ever? I mean, I think like everybody, I, I went, through a lot of shifts. Uh, there were times, I, I feel lucky to have a really good partner and she keeps me, she, how can I say, she's really good with inviting instead of criticizing, if that makes sense. You know, it's like, she's going out on the porch to do yoga. It's like, do you want to go and try? Yeah, I'll come with you. Like, you know, no shame if I don't, if I'm not up to it, but uh, she, was really good at kind of investing quietly in my better self, uh, which enabled me to invest quietly in my better self. And, uh, and I went through all the ups and downs that everybody went through. I went through times where I was, um, I felt like I had a lot of resource and like, I'm gonna do, get through this. And other weeks where I was utterly in despair uh, or, so involved in the news cycle that I was just caught up in rage and judgment. You know, I I think around this time last year, I had a real come to Jesus about just my own level of judgment and anger. And I realized I I was becoming the thing I hated. I was becoming, uh, I I, I wasn't being kind in my thoughts to other people. I wasn't being open-minded. I was being, rigid and angry and divisive and uh i've really you know there there's constant opportunities i mean that's the thing with life right it goes up and goes down and uh you sometimes have more resource than other times and it's uh always an opportunity but more so now than many times (laughs) yeah you know uh and so it, it yeah, I, I've been, I, I've played every character. I've, I've done pretty well. And then I've, I've completely lost my shit. So it's like weird it, when you're, when you're playing those characters, sometimes 10 times a day, that's where it gets weird, you know, where you wake yeah. up filled with empathy and you go to bed filled, filled with, with anger. Yeah. And it, it can turn on a dime and there's days, you know, where I'm feeling pretty, you know, just even this week, it's like the pull out in Afghanistan. Oh, that's, that's a heartbreaking humanitarian tragedy. And then oh, it's like, Oh, New York, the subway flooding. Holy, holy moly. Oh yeah. The earth is not getting any better on our watch. And I don't know how to think of the future anymore. And the, you know, friends in the fires in Tahoe and like, I, this is, it was weird when, when things first started, I, there's enough of me that has kind of a chicken little warrior. Uh, I mean, I would have been a good actuary, I think. I'm great at uh, thinking of everything that could possibly go wrong. It's like, I, I have a, actually a strong skill set in that. And, uh, it, it, and so there was a part of me that was like, when, the, when things started, it was like, ah, pandemic, I was built for this. I, had to, <laughs> I knew things, were, and, and, you know, but then over time, you know, you just get worn out. Uh, and I mean, once again, finding resilience, finding hope. Um, and it, you know, it's the theme of the new album. If there's any theme to it, it's about hope and resilience. And I had a friend point out to me that it's like, this is the least regret I've ever heard on any album of yours. I felt like you were like, in regret, and I realized, oh my God, that's actually kind of the other theme. It's like it's not like it's ignoring mistakes of the past. There's mention of it, but it doesn't. I'm not. I'm really working hard to not just sit there and self-flagellate about every terrible mistake I've ever made. It's like there's no time. Uh, there's no. It's much more important to to move forward and to you know find some resilience uh, and. Um, you know, even in switching from, I think, looking for answers a few years ago, I really wanted to have the big spiritual breakthrough that would explain everything. And I kept finding teachers who were like, oh, no, you, you don't get there. You get better tools and you get better 
you know, practices and habits, but basically you never figure it out. Everything you figure out, you just get knocked down in a different way the next time. And it's about learning. It's about, you know, staying, staying open. Uh, you know, Tara Brock was one of the people who really got me through the pandemic, uh, just listening to her. And once again, finding teachers who, instead of acting like they've worked it out, uh, are very honest about the fact that working it out is not actually the point or the goal. It's an impossibility. Uh, so, yeah, it's kind of the process. I mean, we, we are all a little bit like Sisyphus, right? You just kind of keep rolling it up mm -hmm. that boulder and then it keeps coming back down. You get moments of clarity. Yeah, well, and my, my girlfriend is, is an English teacher and she's, she's in eighth grade right now, which is, she loves her students, but it's also, she used to do, uh, you know, 12th and 9th where there's more prefrontal cortex to work with. So you can teach more interesting stuff, but you know, her, she always goes back to Camus version of Sisyphus, right? Uh, and that the point of Sisyphus is not, for Camus is not that it's this endless torture, but that it is um, this, opportunity to look at what's your attitude when you carry the when you push the stone and you can make it fun if you want to make it a game if you want to make it enjoyable if you want to smile while you do it you actually have that choice but no matter what you do you're going to push the stone up the hill over and over and you can choose you can actually determine the nature of that activity <laughs> and right Thank right. you, Camus. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. And that applies, I think, to everything, to being a creative mm -hmm. person, to being a happy person, to being a thoughtful person. All of those things are processes of, you know, rolling something up a hill yeah. and what your attitude is as you do it. But, but our culture, I think, does like to emphasize like this idea that you arrive, you get enough stuff and you, if you get everything right, that somehow you win and then you can, then you can just ride the rest of your life and no real teaching promises that uh you know that right. that you arrive and then you're done it's like the very nature of the process of being human is to kind of choose whether to you know shut down when the next wave comes and protect yourself or tamp it down with alcohol or tamp it down with anger or to you know or you have the choice to expand your capacity and uh expanding your capacity means you got to just feel more and, and you know once again i've definitely had times where i'm like you know for me that can go i'm not like an excessive drinker but my habit with drinking tends to be i'll stop for a long while start again every couple weekends and then at some point i just get to the point where i drink a small amount every day and if I do that for a month or two, I get insanely depressed. I don't have to like be rolling over my car or waking up hungover or, you know, waking up in bed with strangers to, to stop drinking. It's just, I realize that my serotonin levels are really sensitive. And for me, any alcohol use for any extended period just makes me a miserable human being. And that as soon as I stop, I tend to get really depressed for a week because whatever I've sublimated comes back in full force. Of course. <laughs> right, right. And then I start feeling like I can handle more. And it's totally worth giving up that one to two hours of feeling a little better, you know, right after you drink for the entire next day of feeling hopeless until the next drink. <laughs> and uh, it, it's hilarious how quickly those tables turn for me. I'm just way too sensitive to it. And more so as I get older and just having to, you know, once again, thinking of different kinds of freedom. For me, that idea of the freedom of, uh, the freedom of saying no to the quick pleasure in order to have the greater pleasures. Mm. And just to remember that a little bit of discipline makes me, a much more joyful and useful and happy, you know, and, and productive person. And that that's actually like so much better than doing whatever the hell I want, whenever the hell I want to like, that's, that's as definitions of freedom go, it's like the most childish one is doing what I want what now. Right. Right. <laughs> Does that, did that wisdom around alcohol, did that, is that a new revelation or did that 
is that something you you realized a while ago? This is something I have learned numerous times. The last round of it was actually uh, just a couple weeks ago. Mm. Uh, the last round of kind of getting out of it. I, I allowed myself, I think, during the summer, there was a little bit of that feeling of it's a rumpspringer, you know, and like, we're all going to go have a great time and go party. And so I was allowing myself. And I think there was also this feeling of imminent doom and this realization that even if COVID was ending up, we probably were not going to make our deadlines to do anything about climate change and about divisiveness and hatefulness and a kind of um, willing, uh, I, I don't know what you would even call it, uh, a willingness to um, be hateful, violent, a uh, normalization of, of uh, you know, kind of unkind behavior uh, that's just heartbreaking. Uh, and uh, so, you know, facing those things again was really hard. I, I think we all expected to feel better when things loosened up. Mm. And, you know, just like when you stop drinking the Trump, you know, the stuff you've sublimated comes up. I think stuff that we couldn't afford to feel in the midst of 2020 uh, re started reemerging when things opened up. We all wanted to be all happy and joyful and parts of us definitely were, but I think, it also gave people room to grieve in a way that uh, they hadn't expected. And I think people felt they were supposed to feel a lot better than they did. Uh, but I would find myself just spontaneously weeping a lot during the summer. Uh, stuff, tears that I wasn't able to cry uh, when, when things were shut down. And so uh, the so I, I kind of let myself, you know, and once again, I'm not a drunk, uh, but I do notice a similarity to the pattern uh, where I come to a point of having to value my happiness way more than valuing feeling normal by having a drink with people. And, uh, you know, luckily I had the tour as a great excuse to stop drinking again and got to take care of my voice, got to keep my immunity up. I uh, got to get through this thing, want to do the best shows I possibly can for people and want to be in the best spirits I can for people. And so, um, you know, so yeah, once again, it's not like something I can carry around in a, uh, I, I don't know if I have like that Jason Isbell, like I slayed the dragon and the dragon is gone. And for me, it's, it's like more like, it's just an annoying habit that I have to, make priorities around <laughs> you know yeah and you know you and I are the same age exactly and I feel also that there is there's not many pleasures of of getting older but one of them is wisdom I do have to say I do feel smarter about the things you're talking about than I did even five years ago mm -hmm. yeah and I would rather like you know go into some deep introspection, you know, every quarter, whether that's, you know, meditation retreat or psychedelics or, you know, the, you know, ceremonial work that, that can, like, there are so many ways to crack open the mind and go deeper and do things that are um, enlivening and uh, creatively and spiritually fulfilling, uh, you know, or doing things that are arduous and difficult, but are, you know, whether that's a yoga practice or, you know, my friend Tom for his 50, he had wanted to go to Kilimanjaro, you know, I went up Kilimanjaro with, you know, my friends, like just before things shut down and doing things that are difficult um, really wakes you up. Learning new skills really wakes you up and making the time for those. Uh, I just find that if I'm drinking regularly, I don't have the energy to do those extra things in the same way or go as deeply into them. And um, I used to make, I love alcohol, you know, but I don't mean to make the whole interview about this, but it's just no, no. like, it's also, it's just like, yeah, just trying to make, oh, like that thing I want on a daily, uh, on a daily level just isn't as fun as the other things I want or as fulfilling as the other things I want. And I better to make a, a, a choice in, in, for those other things you know? Right. And also being, being well partnered 
I think is really important. And, you know, that could also be a conversation where your partner could say to you, I think I like you better when you're not, <laughs> you're not drinking. I think you're a better person or whatever it might be. The funny thing about it is her only problem with my drinking is that I beat the crap out of myself for it. Oh, mercilessly. Yeah. And she's like, you never drunk, you never weird, you never say stupid shit, but man, you beat the crap out of yourself and that's hard to watch. And, uh, you know, she's happy for me to be happy. And once again, she's a teacher. So she learned a long time ago uh, that having, you know, having a drink in the middle of the week is not worth it if you got to be present for a whole bunch of kids. It's just like, so she, she's much better at discipline than I am. Uh, I mean, one thing about having been in the business I'm in, um, if you show up on time and sober for anything and you're a rock star, people are like, wow, you're amazing. You're so together. Like the, our, our, <laughs> the bar is extremely low for, for yeah. rock musician behavior. And so, uh, it, and, and even as a job, there are a few jobs, you know, back to alcohol, there are very few jobs where you are not only encouraged to drink while you work, but uh, encouraged, uh, you're encouraged to drink and it's free and limitless. And so <laughs> most people don't have these issues. You actually have to budget your nights out. And when you're, you know, in the band on stage, it's like people just put drinks right in front of you. And, you know, if you're drinking on the, the road, it's like there's just a row of shots in front of you and it's rude not to drink them. So uh, it's, you know, it, it, as a, a lifestyle, the expectations are kind of low enough and oriented differently enough that it's, uh, you know, it can take some willpower to kind of break out of it. Um, and so, uh, yeah, low expectations have not served me well. Uh, so I'm trying to raise them on my own. <laughs> but do you remember when we were kids, and th this always this always did it for me, is there was always that one teacher, whether it was high school or eighth grade, who smelled like alcohol, like you could tell they were drinking. And I always was afraid um, being a professor, I don't want anyone to be like, that guy smells like booze. So I have stayed away from it completely mm -hmm. um, because I, I don't want to be that guy because I still remember those teachers' names from yeah. seventh grade. On the other hand, I do remember, and I'm not a pot smoker, I do remember there would also be the art teacher that like, oh, the kids were like, oh no, right. he totally gets high in the corner of the athletic field at noon. Yeah. Like, it's really? And they were always pretty cool teachers. Yeah, <laughs> they were cooler than the other ones. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, yeah. Did, um, by the way, just out of curiosity, when she pointed out that you beat yourself up in that way, was that surprising for you to hear and did you try to figure out and unpack why you do that oh no no uh self-criticism is my superpower uh <laughs> i mean uh it's you know well it's a long i mean i could get i could do a whole uh you know uh you know infant in, you know infant attachment uh story with you and go deep into that but it's um I've fought with depression my entire life uh, and mostly in the form of feelings of, you know, deep unworthiness, unlovability and, um, and, and fought against it my entire life too. And uh, somehow have found myself, you know, there's some part of me that believes I'm inherently wrong and irredeemable and yet I seem to still put myself in the path of people who are remarkable and inspiring. And I've always had to fight against the evidence of my friends uh, and the fact that I, I feel lucky in that I wouldn't trade my friends for any uh, anybody else's life. Um, and there are so many things I can you know, pity myself for and do and actively have, uh, but the people I love and who love me are, uh, I, I could not ask for better people. I, I, I find them fascinating and inspiring and full of compassion and challenge. And, uh, and, I, and the thing about knowing wonderful people is that they end up knowing other wonderful people. So there's this, uh, you know, there's this, <laughs> 
exponential growth in in the brilliant people you know brilliant kind people when you know brilliant kind people they just seem to know others and so um you know of anything i you know i don't have much to complain you know i I got divorced. I don't have a house anymore. Santa Barbara's expensive. It's like yeah, they're really high. They're they're high level problems. And uh, if there's anything in my life, I'm just I'm shocked that I, despite the story I tell myself about myself so often, I've still given myself the gift of these people who hold up a mirror to me that has. Um, kept me working and kept me moving forward. It makes me wanna be honest about my process because I think a lot of people have mental health issues and have depression and anxiety. And uh, I, you know, and, and I definitely have those things. Uh, and, you know, that ability to kind of take your sensitivity and your uh, you know, perceptions and, um, you know, ask what's underneath the hood and keep moving forward. And yeah, I'm just in incredibly grateful that the people around me have provided uh, this, this mirror that has kind of helped keep me uh, hoping that I can feel more often the way about myself that they feel about me. And because uh, I know once again, that the product of that, you know, there's a lot of spiritual bypass in the world and there's whole industries built around self-actualization and success and what they don't get to. I mean, you know, the, you know, the purpose of any of that is to serve and uh, to lift others up and to alleviate suffering. And, uh, you know, even if at some level, I'm not sure that humanity has really earned the right to continue to exist on a very personal level, I don't wish any human being suffering. And, you know, of, of any of the big, you know, blessings, you know, says it all. <laughs> and may all beings be happy and free. And to, I, I don't know. I don't know if there's a purpose to life or anything not, but like, if I choose to believe in something that is unprovable, it is that kindness and compassion are the purpose of life. And, uh, and I can't prove it, but I can't think of anything more worthwhile. Uh, and, and I can't think of anything that mean, brings more actual peace and joy to me. Like when I'm giving, I feel really fucking good and not in a cheap way not in a way that wears off, not in a way that has a hangover or has anything other than a plus, right? And there are lots of ways in feeling good in the short term that don't last or actually make you feel worse long-term. And, uh, you know, there, I think there's five, I'm trying to remember the book I was, I, I just did a psych class. One of the things I did in lockdown was I took a psych class online and it was talking about the pleasure circuits of the brain and that there's like five primary pleasure circuits. And one of them is generosity, right? You know, it's why babies will hand you their food. And like one of the things that is already programmed into our brain about how to feel good is giving. Um, and uh, if we spend even a fifth of our time, if you go, okay, out of five pleasure circuits, one of them is that if we just do a fifth of our lives in generosity, we just give out of five, you know, <laughs> you know, spend some in touch, spend some in sensuality, spend some in, you know, all these other, you know, physical activity, whatever. One fifth of generosity. I think we're going to do very, very well by each other. These days are long. These lives are full. Turn the breakers off There's no electric glow Naked as the night sky will laid out on the floor In the lantern light Flicker of the flame Have never been so beautiful 
stubborn You can be hard There's nothing to forgive It's just the way we are say to what you're talking about also to me feels so pure too it's one of the few things in life that feels completely pure and uncut mm-hmm. and I don't think that there is I mean once again there's people like you know the sea there's a lot once again things that I consider spiritual bypass where also people say you know if you do this you do that that it will grant you a certain end game right you give, you do for others, and that will trick the universe into giving you what you want. Mm. And sometimes it works that way, but sometimes it doesn't. And, and for me, like as a non-Christian, I, I kind of consider the story of the crucifixion and everything a, a wonderful allegory for uh, that attitude that if you live a holy, um, generous, compassionate life, you might still get tortured to death. And that's okay. <laughs> and, that, and that as you're being tortured to death, you may have doubts about whether you did the right thing or not. You may feel tempted to take it all back and, and go into the realm. And like, that's the human experience. You can do everything right. It doesn't mean that the floods won't come. It doesn't mean you get to keep your house. It doesn't mean people you love won't die. Um, just means you're Sisyphus. Or Jesus, you know, it's like these stories for all of us, like uh, they're, they're, they're far less uh, celestial than they appear. <laughs> That's true. That's and true. So, yeah. Yeah. And you, it also shows that you can move through life with, with pure intentions in that beautiful groove, but life will still deliver their, its blows. It's going to absolutely, no matter what, it will deliver its blows. And, you know, and there's that weird thing between, you know, uh, you know, when I think of, you know, when I was reading, uh, I think it's in exile from the land of snow it was a long time ago, there was a, a Dalai Lama autobiography, and he was, you know, talking about the differences in, in, you know, just monk to monk, right, people had given their entire life to this deep, inquisitive study, and some of them, when the shit hit the fan, that was what got them through. 
and some of them, when the shit hit the fan, all the meditation in the world, <laughs> if you haven't also practiced loss and integration and, uh, you know, if you've been hiding from the world, uh, you may not actually be able, you know, there's, there's a lot of ways to hide out as well. And uh, it can be more than you can handle. And, um, you know, I think if anything that the new world is going to require for us, uh, it's going to be resilience. And, um, you know, resilience doesn't mean you don't get hurt and it doesn't mean you, um, you know, you don't get knocked down. Uh, it doesn't mean you get it all right, but it means you can recover and uh, means you can kind of keep moving forward. Um, you know, the, the uh, Elise had given me this book on hope. And once again, I'm forgetting her name. She also does a lot of translation. She translates her okay. Uh, and she writes about hope as this active state, right? Where optimism is everything's going to be great. Don't need to do anything. Pessimism, everything's going to shit. Don't need to do anything. Hope, I know what the hard and right thing is to do. And I'll do that because it's the hard and right thing to do. And I have no idea how things will turn out. <laughs> and uh, that works. By the way, your cats just did a perfect like tandem <laughs> going down, like yeah. perfectly synchronized. I'm, I'm impressed. He'll do these things. Uh, yeah. And, and <laughs> oh, it was one cat in a mirror. I just saw the movement and it was this dual ripple. And I'm like, wow, cool yeah. cats. That's, well his, that's his, his performance art for you. Um, but also what you're talking about in the Western world, it's sort of positioned as transactional. Like if I do these really good things, then, then the world won't hurt me. And that is completely false. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that heaven is this, you know, this state of eternal bliss. You do the right thing. You feel it's a mechanistic, mechanistic and transactional kind of attitude towards morality. Uh, I, I've been really enjoying my, my current, uh, like, television uh indulgence uh has been this show lucifer oh yeah i love uh, it and i'm a neil gaiman fan so i know that you know the, the the background of it but just this it's such a beautifully told story it's so ridiculous right because jerry bruckheimer murder you know homicide cop show <laughs> but then underneath it this idea that hell is us punishing ourselves for all eternity for our sins and being unwilling to move past them or forgive or grow. And that basically we always have the option to uh, truly take stock and to move forward. And that's the most difficult thing to do is to, uh, yeah, to start over again. So back to the album title, starting now. Starting now. question. Well I mean, the thing is, is that, you know, <laughs> yeah, I have made so many mistakes in my life, but I feel like I've observed them and I, and I, and I don't repeat mistakes. And one of the nice things- I don't repeat is, them too many times. <laughs> right, right. And, and that's the whole thing about getting older is that I do feel that if you can be the best iteration of yourself today than you were yesterday, then I think you're doing all right. Yeah. And, and honestly, it's also one of the things that scares me about- some of where American society is headed is this kind of attitude towards never, you know, even, you know, you look at the CDC and people say, well, I can't trust the CDC because they said at the beginning, they weren't sure about masks. And then they said there were fomites. And then they said there weren't fomites. And it's like, right. that's because they're collecting all the data they can. And they're, as they learn, they're adjusting what they say. It doesn't, Yes, they, they have the ability to be wrong, but that's how science, like, I trust that. I, I trust people more if they don't take the attitude that they are right in this moment and have always been right and have never been wrong. I find right. nothing, I, that I find to be incredibly concerning. That worries the hell out of me. Uh, and it, it's, yeah, it's really weird, uh, that attitude of like, you know, this impenetrable, uh, rigid rightness, because um, it's a dead end. Like, 
uh, and, and even in the, you know, the world, I've, I've had friends who were like, oh, you got to listen to intellectual dark web and go into, you know, and, and I listen to these men and I hear, I mean, I will say Sam Harris, I disagree with him on many things, but he has limits and he's actually willing to be wrong. And some of them, I just start hearing more than anything that they're saying, all their intellect being turned into the justification of never having to apologize for ever having made a slight to anybody and to never be wrong at any cost. And at the cost of actually losing their ability to uh, you know, look at their own confirmation bias. And, and it's astonishing to see people who are so well-trained in scientific method uh, to, ha to have lost it so utterly within themselves, the ability to have objectivity mm. uh, due to their, I mean, I see with, you know, Brett Weinstein in particular, like this utter inability to, uh, to question his own position uh, that has come at the great cost of now being an apologist for like, and using a decent intellect to, uh, to become an apologist for, for lunacy, uh, it's wild. And to, to say, as someone trained in science, I, I don't need peer review anymore because my wife always tells me the truth. It's like, <laughs> I... <laughs> anyway, I yeah. digress. <laughs> no, you're right. And also the idea that like, hey, look, the CDC is not trying to fuck you up. That's not what they're doing. And doctors aren't trying to fuck you up. And, and, and the thing is even, I don't trust Pfizer. Of course I don't trust Pfizer. I do trust all the doctors who have taken uh, Hippocratic oaths who really wanna heal, who, you know, part of the reason that drug development is so expensive is because there are so many widely held double blind studies because they are so intensely over the top rigorous about the development of these things. Um, and even with vaccines, as much, you know, you can argue vaccine court that there's been a, a denialism about the long tail of serious side effects in a very small degree of people. And I think you have to be able to say, yes, there can be catastrophic, very rare side effects. And then you look at the numbers and the overall benefit to community. And I know people who've dealt with the families that have felt those extreme side effects. And so if it's a one in a million and it's your kid, you're gonna have some strong feelings about it. But compared to other risks, and we're talking about public health and public health is imperfect. Uh, and you do have to get numeric about it. It's, it is a lesser of evils. There's no utterly pure thing to do. Um, but when I look at, you know, you know, these public, you know, listings of every side effect and how they're saying, you know, it's like you're dealing with a, a sample size of 200 plus million people. And I, I have known those who are willing to look at that and say, yeah, the data is not in. This is new technology, even though it's 50 years that mRNA has been around. <laughs> uh, it's new technology. This was a quick rollout. I don't trust it. Uh, and I've heard someone on the internet telling me that a deworming thing works and that there's a discredited Egyptian study of only a thousand people without a proper double blind because they were taking higher chloroquine. And so I'm gonna you know, take a deworming. And that to me is, is wild that the distrust for the institutions is so high that you're willing to dismiss a sample size of 200 million people and go into an incredibly small and incredibly poorly weighted study and put your faith in there and um and people i love have done this and so uh it's you know once again trying to keep my own compassion my own you know and my own reason alive while still looking like hey man i want the miracle cure everybody wants the miracle cure and i also know doctors and if any doctor i knew had looked at that material and gone this is incredibly compelling and some of them have gone yeah i want to see some good studies on this but they all go like, I know how to read these. These aren't good studies. Mm. They aren't good studies yet. And man, if this was actually the smoking gun to cure it all, I would be telling everybody to take it. Like everybody wants this to end. Nobody wants this to end more than doctors because they're going crazy. <laughs> they're, they're being so overworked. They're in such a high risk 
point of view. And they have people screaming at them for trying to save their lives. And if you think doctors aren't motivated to find the cure and that somehow millions of doctors have been so brainwashed with Pfizer that they're, uh, that they're you know, jumping on this Vax train, despite like, I just don't believe it for a second. Like nobody wants this to be over more than doctors do. Um, they're going through hell and people are quitting the medical profession because they've gone through hell to such a degree. They don't want this to last a day longer than it has to. And if anything actually works, they will be the first people to, to, to want to give it to you. Um, yeah. And, and that's why the other day when I, I heard Joe Rogan was talking about, he has, he has COVID and he was saying, I did all these things. And I thought, okay, that sounds good. Vitamins and water and plenty of rest. And then yeah. he threw the horse dewormer in and I went, oh no, he has such massive reach. And I thought that's going to kill a lot of people. Well, and even with that, because I actually, I have a friend who did his research, but actually did his research on it. He took a human formulation one time. He's saying, nobody should be taking this prophylactic. He's like covering my bases. I looked at my, I was like, ah, not into it, but okay, I'm going to trust. I'm going to trust you more on that. I don't know if I would take it myself, right? but, and I'm not trying to be an apologize, uh, apologist for it. I know my doctor friends would say, avoid that shit at all costs. Uh, <laughs> and I also know that the one person I know who would give me pause, like who I respect enough and who actually knows how to read medical studies. I know one person who ended up doing a single dose. The hilarious thing is that he also said that he discovered he'd had an intestinal parasite he wasn't aware of. <laughs> that was convenient. <laughs> now afraid of it, but, um, and doesn't necessarily know, but he figured his risk on a one-time dosage of that was acceptable to him. And he took a human formulation, but to be taking a veterinary formulation prophylactically consistently is an invitation to, uh, you know, it's why 70% of the calls in, I believe it was uh, Mississippi to poison control are from people taking ivermectin. It's, <laughs> it is not designed for continued use. It is not approved for continuous use. And us particularly the, the veterinary formulations are not the same as the human formulations. And uh, unless you are a biochemist and are able to read all through these things, I'm just going to believe anyone who you know, says it's different, it's not the same, you don't want it in your body. And particularly you don't want it in your body in daily doses. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, so, you know, Joe Rogan, if he's done his research, I mean, the problem is, I think his his being an apologist for its use uh, means people will be taking veterinary formulations, right. and taking veterinary formulations right. prophylactically, and that that's uh, that is incredibly unwise and dangerous, uh, and is on record as being so. Um, and frankly, if ivermectin is a single dosage thing. People are researching it and people are trying to get accurate double-blind studies because there's been so much talk about it. So far, the research on it looks unpromising for the most part, the good research. And the most promising research was found to be riddled with plagiarism and uh, repeated names, copy and pasted from other studies and falsified. And so if your best information is false and probably people doing that felt that the pharmaceutical companies were being disingenuous and lying. And there's a lot of people who think the other side is lying. So they may as well falsify because the other people are doing it and they're trying to get what they think is true out there. But that's not how science works. And that's not, you know, we're, this is not, uh, you know, the fugitive with, you know, Harrison Ford busting in at the end and saying, you tried this out. Like, it's not that. Like there are too many checks and balances. There are too many checks and balances. And um, while I don't think Pfizer ultimately has my best interests at heart, uh, I do think they make products ultimately that work. And uh, this doesn't mean I don't believe in yoga and health right. and a balanced diet and eating vegetables from the farmer's market. I do all these other things too, but it also means... Uh, and it doesn't mean that I don't think, you know, the earth is in some ways a single organism that all mitochondrial life goes back to a single 
ancestor and that this is a view, you know, I'm, I'm totally into Gaia theory. I'm totally into the idea of uh, forms of sentience that are non-human and non-tool making. Uh, but for all of that, I also kind of believe in public health and, and I'm not even fully convinced that humans haven't in some way given up the right to exist by treating the, the planet so poorly. Uh, but for all those caveats, I am still a human being. I don't want my children to suffer. I don't want strangers to suffer. I don't want anyone on ivermectin to get sick. I don't want anyone who takes a vaccine to get sick. I don't want anyone who doesn't take a vaccine to suffer, uh, to be on a ventilator to die. I, I want to attempt to have, uh, you know, a good outcome for as many people as possible. And that's where, that's where my hope comes in, right? And, and so uh, I, I can balance my new aginess with uh, my, you know, with my trust in the history of public health. And so- It's a yeah. good combination. I think it's a good, I think it's a very good combination. Um, and it's been hard to talk about public. I mean, this is the most publicly I've ever spoken about it because it's also divisive now. And it's, there's so much of a knee-jerk reaction to it. And, uh, you know, and, and I, I, I was spared the MAGA world. There was no one in my family who was deeply, deeply Trumpy. And, and what I found as, as, the, um, as this has continued is the places where I've really had to challenge my high horse or people in the natural health world, uh, which I am deeply aligned with, uh, who are strongly anti-vax and where that can bleed over into conspiracy theory, not always, but sometimes. And, uh, and so for me to have to really keep my awareness um, up around that, but I know people who have gone toe to toe with the FDA and won and mm -hmm. who actually did have the rare cure that the FDA ignored that did work and that the FDA over time had to turn around. So I know that that story isn't always untrue, but it also doesn't mean because it was true once that it's always true or even often true. And, uh, <laughs> and that that has to be kept in mind as well, that it's not always David, David and Goliath and that, uh, you know, and public health is ultimately, public health is a compromise uh, in the same way that stopping at a, at a red light is a compromise. Uh, yeah, and, and the FDA has fucked up before. I mean, it's happened. Multiple times. Yeah. And, multiple and, times. And, and CDC, and they've fucked up in the course of, of the last couple of years. Yeah. Spectacularly at times. And, uh, but once again, I have more trust for entities that, take stock of their mistakes and move forward than I do for entities that claim to have always been right. And, and also people as well. I, I like people who admit that they're wrong. <laughs> like people yeah. in my life, like yeah. that, you know. If I'm wrong with ivermectin, thank goodness, because that yeah. means there's cheap available. Like really, if I am wrong about it, great. But uh, the studies on that compared to the 200 million plus people who have had the vaccine and the rates of side effects in that, uh, the, the effects of uh, ivermectin seem far more scary to me and far less proven to be efficacious. But once again, I was raised, I was raised by a physicist and, and a chemist, both PhDs, both from Berkeley. Uh, you know, I, I was raised by academics and uh, maybe I have too much faith, but uh, the, the, the quality of um, both intellect, but skepticism and, and having to understand there are things I don't get and I have to trust someone about them. And then it's a question of my level of trust with various people and, and having to also question where my distrust comes in and what, motiv what motivates both my trust and my distrust. Um, but when I come down to things like, for instance, doctors, um, I'm going to trust doctors over pharmaceutical companies and also over skeptics who are selling supplements. And yeah. if you give me a hundred epidemiologists versus one evolutionary biologist, 
I'm going to take the epidemiologists because they know what the fuck they're talking about. And even if the other one can use scientific language, I'm sorry, you lose, you know? Right, right. So, yeah. And a yeah. little bit of critical thinking never hurt anybody. No, but a lot of critical thinking did. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, there's also that. Um, and I have another, you know, I think an yeah. hour has already passed. I'm, so I'm going to have to jump very, very soon. No problem. And I wanted to tell you, I don't know, you probably don't remember this, but 30 years ago, right, right as Bread and Circus came out, you guys came to my radio show on the campus of St. Mary's College, mm -hmm. um, small private Catholic school just outside of Berkeley. Well, you and I yeah. were both 18 uh, at the time, and um, you guys played I Walk the Earth by Voice of the Beehive. So I don't know if you remember this day. It was so long. Oh, yeah, ago. yeah. And you came to the show and I've never forgotten how fucking nice and kind you guys were and nothing. Oh, thank you. And I've, I've carried that with me for 35 years. I've always I've never forgotten that, that you guys came and did that. Thank you so much. Yeah. And yeah. it was kind of cool. I was like, Oh, here's a guy in a band who's the same age as me. That was the first time that it ever happened. Oh, well, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, good to see you again after all this time. Thank you for talking. And thank uh, you. I hope your year back in school goes well for you. Thanks, buddy. Good luck with the tour and come back on the show anytime. All right. Thank you so much. that very sweet guy that glenn phillips and his band toad the wet sprocket have just put out a pretty sweet album starting now is what it's called and you should get it toad the wet sprocket.com is where you need to go to find out how you can get it and by the way the band is touring go see them live they are a great live act alexgreenonline.com is where you need to go to find out what's happening with me BombshellRadio.com is where you need to go to find out what's happening with our radio station. You can follow me on Twitter at Ember's Editor. You can follow me on Instagram at Ember's Podcast. You can also email me, editor, at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. Don't forget, and I'm sure you haven't, that Stereo Embers the Podcast is available on all podcast platforms. I defy you to find a platform where we are not available. And now that I've issued that challenge, you'll probably find one that we are not on, and I'll look stupid. It's my own fault. What can I do? But listen, we're available on all podcast platforms that I know of. Go to the one that you use, subscribe, rate and review, tell a friend. It sounds like a lot, but you know it's not that much, right? It takes like, what, four or five seconds? Okay. We'd appreciate you spreading the word about our podcast. It really does mean a lot to us. Let's close the show with the title track from Toad the Wet Sprocket's new album, starting now. Enjoy it, and thank you as always for listening to Stereo Embers, the podcast only right here on Bombshell Radio. I've wasted years, won't waste another instant. I fed my fears. Don't mean you sit there Just waiting for the changes It's fighting for the long shot It's getting in the trenches Starting
starting now 